EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinol. Evolving into a broad energy company, harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea is one of our solutions for the European energy transition. If we open up a sector, we need to do it for the coming 100 years and not for the coming month. February and March will be still two very difficult months. Personally, I'm not afraid about new variants of the virus. The biggest risk is relaxing measures too soon. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard from Steven van Hoogt. He's a virologist and spokesman for Belgium's COVID-19 Crisis Centre. And you'll hear more from him later in the podcast. It's a must-listen interview if you live in Belgium and want to know when you'll get a vaccine. Or even, and I'm declaring a strong personal interest here, when you might be able to get a haircut. But even if you don't live here in Brussels, it still gives a very interesting insight into what virologists are saying to governments and what's keeping them awake at night. And there's been plenty on the European political front to keep us awake at night, including lots of controversy over the EU's vaccine strategy and the role of Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. You'll hear directly from her later in the show. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And also joining us this week, our Brussels-based trade reporter, Jakob Hanke Vela. Hi, Jakob. Hello, Andrew. Great to have you with us. And we've uh, pulled you in this week because you're the man who knows more than anyone else about one of the big subjects of controversy in uh, the past week or so. And that's the EU's efforts to impose some kind of export controls on coronavirus vaccines. In a sense, Jakob, uh, this came about right because of growing political pressure and the kind of not quite said openly, but pretty close to it, allegation that vaccine makers were basically using vaccines made in Europe to supply other countries and the EU felt they had the right to these vaccines. So this was an attempt to try and right. get control. Right. And, and it depends who you ask, whether it was an attempt to get visibility or, or something more, but it ended up being something more, right? Right. So the commission was under extreme pressure in Germany, France, because of the slow rollout of the vaccines. And when then the announcement came that AstraZeneca was cutting its supplies by 60% or more, uh, that's when this all exploded. Um, and the allegations coming from the EU were exactly what you said, that uh, AstraZeneca was cutting its supplies to the EU, but at the same time was delivering as promised to the UK, and maybe even had shipped some doses made in the EU to the UK, at least before the vaccine got approved in Europe. Right. And the commission said you should have kept those doses because you knew it was probably going to get approved pretty soon. You should have stuck them here for the moment. Um, the commission wanted a bazooka to put pressure on AstraZeneca, essentially. Some people might think, well, you know, what's the problem here? Export controls quite right. Vaccines that are being made in Europe should go to Europeans first. But then there are others, including, I think, some member countries who are more uncomfortable with this idea and people inside the commission. So what's their objection to this kind of measure? So the Trade Department doesn't like this measure because it makes the EU look protectionist. 
and it's the commission that always goes out in all these international fora, the WHO, the WTO, slamming the US and the UK for being what they say is protectionist. And then imposing an export ban makes makes them look extremely hypocritical. And the Trade Department was acutely aware of that danger. It was also acutely aware of the fact that a lot of countries depend on uh, supplies of these vaccines made in Europe. But national governments say, well, we our first responsibility is not with the entire world. Our first responsibility is with the people who elect us. And that's our citizens. And they are the ones who paid to build up these factories. And they now expect to get these doses that they paid for. Mm. And what we what we saw, I think, in the course of, of the week was measures going from the kind of uh, debatable to the kind of indefensible, which is what happened on Friday evening right. when everybody started to notice that as part of this measure, there was some very specific language about Ireland, about the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which basically meant overriding the agreement uh, that means there are no border checks, that effectively Northern Ireland is kind of part of the EU's kind of customs zone to an extent. And there was obviously a fear that somehow Northern Ireland could be used as a backdoor to get vaccines uh, from uh, Northern Ireland into the UK or into Britain, I should say, uh, more correctly. And this set off an absolute firestorm, um, first and foremost, because the Irish government had not been consulted about this. It was quite amazing to kind of watch it explode on, on a Friday evening right. as it became aware that, you know, became obvious the UK government hadn't been notified. The Irish government was extremely worried. And for uh, the EU, which has spent you know, the past few years over the Brexit talks, insisting that uh, peace on the island of Ireland was its top priority and the Good Friday Agreement had to be preserved. To have taken this kind of unilateral action just seemed extraordinary. And the commission was forced into a U-turn within hours. You know, never a good sign when a public official has to tweet in the middle of the night. And that's what happened here as as they tried to do kind of damage control. Jacob, do you have any explanation as to how this happened? Well, we know that it happened between a small circle of people. We don't know exactly who. We've heard that uh, it was mostly German officials. We've heard suggestions that, which also is, makes sense, right, that uh, von der Leyen or at least her cabinet, so the commission president or at least her cabinet, were involved in this. Um, which would make sense because it was such a political decision that you wouldn't roll it out without the commission president having having seen it. And she, I mean, she also has now taken full responsibility, apparently, in front of uh, parliamentarians. What we also know is that the trade commissioner probably was not involved. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the funny <laughs> things, isn't it? Just as we talk it through, this, even even these days later, they have been so opaque about all of this, about who actually right. took these decisions. I mean, even the Irish government saying the other day, we still don't know who came up with this. And I do think there's a, there's a right. whole transparency issue and the way that the von der Leyen cabinet does business, right, in a, a small group. It's, it's exactly what you're saying. It's actually, there's a lot of buck passing going on. We heard the Trade Department several times blame the Health Department, the <laughs> Health Department saying it was not involved at all in this Article 16. What matters is that there's no accountability. This is a big problem. That Someone made a mistake, and as you say, we don't really know who. Mm. Um, what's also, it undermines the commission's credibility because its main claim has always been we're the experts, we're the guardians of the treaties, 
we are bureaucrats yes but that's what you need because these are such detailed questions on articles and deals well they made this big mistake with article 16 basically triggering this border and didn't see it coming right and in kind of in two senses i suppose because as you say they say they're the technical experts they're the ones you can trust on the detail and here the detail was kind of spectacularly dangerous uh, and second obviously at the top level they're meant to have the kind of political antennae to spot when something uh, you know could be a, a political bomb and stop it before it goes off and that didn't happen here either matt what do you think how how damaged do you think ursula von der leyen is has there been any blowback in germany for example there hasn't been much blowback and i i doubt that there will be because they will protect von der leyen they'll protect the commission and the eu and there's a sense i think here uh in kind of mainstream political circles and even in the media to a degree that, you know, attacking the EU for this whole vaccine fiasco is a bit off limits. I mean, I think on, on this specific issue, I don't think it's uh, a mystery who's responsible. It's clearly Ursula von der Leyen. She's in charge of the commission. If she didn't know about the triggering of this Article 16, that might even be worse than if she did know about it because it shows, uh, it would show that that she's not really in charge of her operation there. So I, I think it's a big problem in terms of the credibility of the commission. I don't think it will endanger her position in the immediate term, but I do think that it erodes both her credibility in Europe and the credibility of of the EU. Mm. Reem, um, what do you make of it and what, how has it been received in Paris? It got no traction in France. If you asked uh, most of the people in France what was happening, they'd just look at you with a blank stare. I have been baffled by basically everything we've seen from EU-level officials, but also Emmanuel Macron and German officials over the past 10 days. It just feels like kind of the wheels are coming off in some way. Well, it does. I mean, I have to say, particularly Friday, when it felt like, what were they thinking day? It just seemed to be one after thing after another. We were thinking, why why have they done that? And, and yeah. that brings us maybe to, to something you witnessed firsthand and, and reported, which was Emmanuel Macron making some very outspoken comments. I want to be really careful how we kind of phrase them and characterise them about the AstraZeneca vaccine. You can probably give us the best, you know, give us the setup as well. Tell us the context and tell us what he said. So Friday, this is last Friday for our, our listeners. I was one of 11 foreign reporters who was invited to have uh, an hour and a half long chat on the record with Emmanuel Macron at the Elysee. This is the first time they've done this in about two years. Uh, and I asked him about AstraZeneca, but I also asked him if this phase of the fight against coronavirus and this sort of vaccination drive wasn't, you know, showing that the Brexit gamble of taking back control and leaving the EU was a winning gamble, given that the UK uh, is vaccinating at a faster rate, a bigger proportion of its population. And he gave a long, long answer, as he usually does. And I was surprised because he knew this was on the record. One thing he said was, the issue with AstraZeneca is not just production and supply delays. It is that we have 
very little information yet, but it doesn't work as it was supposed to work. And while we still don't have all the information we need, and we are still waiting for the European Medical Agency to give its recommendation, everything points to thinking that AstraZeneca is quasi-ineffective in people who are older than 65. I am directly quoting here. And then that sort of went on. That conversation was a long conversation. And in it, he tried to kind of nuance and say, you know, I don't have this firsthand. This is not data that I have. This is not based on my data. But here's where it gets complicated. He is the president of France, one of the most powerful executive positions in the democratic world. So when he says something, it has weight. And of course, it caused a firestorm. And, you know, the British government uh, is is very unhappy. Uh, they've accused him of uh, helping anti-vaxxers. They've called him a disgrace, I'm quoting. And, you know, the French government has continued to kind of stand by what they say and basically say the UK has taken risks in its uh, vaccine strategy and the French won't take those same risks, which, by the way, doesn't help the French reputation of being arrogant. <laughs> yeah, it's all getting a bit unseemly with, you know, with everybody kind of, it feels a little bit like the playground people saying, oh, your vaccine's no good. Or, you know, uh, I think you guys aren't, you know, behaving properly. And we should probably just say this is the thing that Emmanuel Macron, the way that he phrased things, went beyond what others have said when they have recommended not giving this vaccine to older people. The general justification is there just isn't enough data. So until we know more about how this affects older people, it's better not to give it to them. He went further in, in suggesting that there was data to uh, at least suggest that it just didn't work very well in, in older people. It's quite a different thing. And, and once again, he did it just hours before the European Medicines Agency was going to give its, um, you know, view. And, you know, that's an agency composed of experts, unlike, you know, the French president who is not an expert in vaccines. And that just, I, you know, it's still... It's a bit more like us. Yeah, but we're trying to be a bit more responsible. Yeah, we're trying to be a bit more responsible. We're just a bunch of people doing a podcast. Anyway, and a bunch of people doing a podcast who, as usual, have talked for too long. Reen, Matt, Jacob, thanks very much. And we'll be back in just a moment. A message from Equinor. Offshore wind farms harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea are one of our solutions for Europe's energy transition. Our offshore wind farms in Europe already generate enough electricity to power the equivalent of one million homes. And we have developed the world's first floating wind farm, enabling the harvest of the winds in deeper waters. Now we are developing the world's largest offshore wind farm, Dodger Bank in the UK North Sea. It alone can power 4.5 million homes. Offshore wind projects are getting bigger, and they are getting more complex. We in Equinor see a sea of opportunities off the coast of Europe to support the energy transition and an industrial renewal. Now, after we wrapped up our panel discussion, our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn, had the chance to join a small group of reporters who spoke to the Commission president. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen sat down with a few of us reporters today in the Berlamont, and as usual, she just seemed completely impermeable to any of the chaos that's been going on around her. Uh, she really is tough, uh, seemed in relatively good spirits, a little bit tired, which is how she seemed uh, through much of this pandemic. But she answered uh, questions about everything from the upheaval in the Italian government, of course, to uh, the trouble in the EU's vaccine strategy, uh, describing her 
dealings with some of the companies, a push now to make uh, contracts public that previously the commission had not been so excited about. With speaking now with the companies to convince them that it's in our both interest to create trust and confidence, also with the European Parliament, to publish the contracts. She had quite a few answers on some of the more controversial issues of late, reassuring members of the European Council, heads of state and government, that in fact there isn't uh, anything to worry about and they're all working quite well together, insisting that the triggering of an emergency override of the Brexit deal was really just a mistake that never should have even been thought about. Last week, I think we shouldn't even have thought about the Article 16. This I regret. But in the very end, we should not uh, forget that uh, the solution that has been approved by the college is a good solution. She didn't quite come clean on how that happened or why. If it's so bad that it shouldn't have even been considered, uh, she didn't exactly explain how it was that this initial regulation got out there, why, for instance, the Irish commissioner, Mairead McGuinness, had said she had no idea about it. But perhaps most Interesting is that when asked a very simple question about when would she get her own vaccine, she had no idea. This is a good question. I have, I do not know at the moment being we are, um, no, I don't know. <laughs> I can't answer that question when I get my vaccination, I must admit, uh, because we are, I think. Um, it depends on the Belgian it's, We are in the scheme yeah, of the Belgian authorities. Um, so, and I would have to ask. <laughs> Honestly. And since the Commission President is herself wondering when she'll get the vaccine, she should keep listening to our next interview with Belgian virologist and government advisor Stephen van Hoogt. He spoke with our chief policy correspondent Sarah Wheaton earlier this week. Can I actually just start by having you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about what your specific role is? My name is Steven van Hucht. I'm a virologist. I'm federal spokesperson on the COVID epidemic in Belgium and also a science advisor for the government. I graduated actually as a veterinarian, but then I very quickly decided to do a PhD in virology. At that time, it was, of course, animal virology. And when I did my PhD in 2003, sars coronavirus one broke out. And I did some work on coronavirus in pigs, which caused a very similar disease as SARS, uh, the first SARS in 2003, but also quite similar to the one we are experiencing now. So that really sparked an interest in me, especially in the link between animal virology and human virology. So after my PhD, I started at the National Institute of Public Health, where I'm still working for the moment. And since 2011, I think, I'm heading the Laboratory of Viral Diseases, which basically is human viral diseases. So I've become a specialist in human influenza. And from that perspective, when the pandemic broke out, the government needed some kind of scientific committee to have direct input on some burning questions that needed to be able to give very quick advice. And so they asked me to create a scientific committee. And since the beginning of the pandemic, it has been 150% for me. I haven't, it's all I've been doing, but it's a very exciting period, a very difficult period, of course. But that's, I think, why I studied virology and uh, I dedicated my career to virology. And now I think it's my, my duty to do what I'm doing and, and to, to do all the best I can do. Mm -hmm. Let me start with the thing that's really top of mind right now, which is vaccines. Everybody's yeah. very eager to get them. 
you know, I have been checking the our tracker of vaccines. And honestly, you know, Belgium, compared to some other EU countries, doesn't really seem like it's it's doing as well. If you look at figures of of how many vaccines have been delivered per 100 people. Um, last time I checked, Belgium, we're speaking on Monday, was ranked about 20 out of 27 EU countries. What's going on? I think we're more or less following the pace of other EU countries. Uh, it's not that much different because this is really a European procedure. So the European Commission has negotiated with the companies and uh, on delivery of vaccines, and then they get distributed to the different member states at a certain pace. And I don't think the differences are that big uh, when you look at it really per 100,000 inhabitants. It's an equal distribution system. And uh, some countries are a bit ahead of the curve, like Denmark. They seem to be very effective in immediately administering the vaccines that they receive. Whereas in Belgium, sometimes there may be a weak delay. But if you look at it at the whole entire picture of the pandemic, and we still need to vaccinate for an entire year, these differences aren't that uh, striking. I think the difference uh, is bigger when you look outside of the European Union, uh, when you compare with a country like the UK, or the United States or Israel. But there the difference is that they just uh, received more vaccines early on. They approved the vaccines earlier on and they started to do mass vaccination uh, before the vaccines were even approved in the European Union. And that's just because they didn't wait for uh, all the data to become available on the clinical trials. Uh, they follow a different procedure and that's just a matter of choice. In the European Union, they said, listen, we have a certain type of procedure. We want to follow it. We will not cut corners short. Uh, it's a fast procedure, uh, but it requires certain steps. And we, will, we want to follow it because we're also a bit afraid about vaccine hesitancy. And we think it's important that at the end we reach at least 70% uh, vaccination coverage. And that's really important if you want to control the epidemic on the long term. And for that, you really need the confidence of people. And probably that's even more important than vaccinating very fast. What you want is to reach a very high coverage with your vaccine, hopefully in a few months. And that will give you the real advantage. Uh, why do I say this? Because I think the, um, the idea is in some countries that uh, the epidemic is moving so fast that the only thing we can do now to save ourselves is vaccinate very aggressively and very rapidly. And the funny thing is that the countries that are vaccinating the most and the fastest are also the companies that seem to be less uh, able to control the epidemic. If you look at Israel, they have a very severe third wave, which they don't seem to be able to control. And they're number one in vaccinating. So it's wrong to think that vaccinating very fast will get you out of the epidemic. It's the measures that do that. And uh, you have to look at it a bit, I think, from a distance. And then this one or two weeks difference between member states don't matter that much. We need to keep confidence of the people. And uh, the only good vaccine is the vaccine uh, that's in your arm, I think. And this will be a matter of months uh, and not weeks. Well, the commission has called for European countries to plan to reach that 70% point that you mentioned by the summer um, or sometime okay. in summer. Do you think Belgium will be able to achieve that goal? We will definitely be able to achieve that if the vaccines are there. 
I have absolutely, I never had any doubt that we were able to vaccinate very quickly a large part of our population. So I have no doubt that we can vaccinate uh, 70% by the summer. Uh, the question is, will the vaccines uh, be there? I hope, and I think they will be there. And who are we vaccinating at this point and who's going to be next? Yeah, so uh, the policy is very clear on that. Uh, first of all, we want to start with the people that are most vulnerable, which have the highest risk of complications, the highest risk of dying and uh, getting ending up into the hospital. So we started with the nursing homes. So uh, and we have advanced quite well there. Most of the residents have been vaccinated once. We started now to give them their second uh, shot. And then another priority group is, of course, the healthcare workers. Uh, and then we will uh, start vaccinating the elderly, people above 65. And we will start with the oldest, let's say first the 80 plus, then you go down to the 70 plus, the 60 plus. And then we will go down also to the younger age groups, uh, but we will also focus on underlying diseases. And that will be a bit challenging to identify these people, to draw somewhere the line. When are you considered to be at increased risk and not? That will be a difficult exercise, but that's how it will go. And at the end, what we really should aim for is to vaccinate as much people as possible. And just to be clear, when will this vaccination outside of nursing homes and health professionals start? Uh, well, if all goes well, we, may, we, we should be able to start in March vaccinating the older generations. We hope that in April uh, we could also start with essential, with certain uh, professional uh, people. So people, uh, I forgot to mention that, but they're also on the priority list. So certain occupations, by their very nature, are more at risk of becoming infected. Uh, let's say people that work in security services, uh, policemen, eh? Uh, they need to do interventions. They can't always avoid physical contact. People that work in public transport, they should also be prioritized. And we hope we can start with them again if the vaccines are there somewhere in April. Then in May, June, uh, we hope we can expand also to the rest of the population. And a lot of our listeners are residents in Belgium, but they're from they're from other countries. At this point, would you recommend that citizens of other European countries go ahead and go home to get vaccinated or should they wait to get vaccinated here in Belgium? Well, we recommend people not to travel too much. This is a temporary thing. It will improve. Uh, things will get better. Uh, and these travel restrictions, they, they will disappear, but not for the moment. So I would prefer people to stay here and uh, yeah, maybe look also uh, with their employer, eh? uh, which is then the European Commission in many cases or other organizations to also speak to them. Eh? If you're not in a risk group, you know, just follow the measures and uh, you should be okay. Uh, the risk of getting infected is relatively limited if you stick to the measures. A lot of these people are able to work from home also. Uh, it's different when you're a bus driver or a policeman. So uh, I, I would advise to be a little bit patient. And one last question about vaccines. We've seen the German regulators say that maybe the AstraZeneca vaccine should only be used for people below 65. The president of France also made some very uh, skeptical comments about its use in older people. Yeah. How is Belgium thinking about that particular vaccine? Well, first of all, let me say that I regret a bit this kind of communication. I understand why they're saying that. And I, I really understand because the data are not complete yet. The results were good, but it was based on a relatively small amount of people. 
so it is good to have more data, but it creates the perception there's a problem with the vaccine. It creates the perception among the public that it doesn't work in elderly, and that is wrong. But there will be new data coming. For example, in the UK, they've been vaccinating their elderly with AstraZeneca since the beginning of January. They will come with very nice data very soon that will show the effectiveness of AstraZeneca vaccine in elderly, in the most vulnerable. But in the meantime, the damage is done. Uh, and the perception is there. I know because I get emails from people saying already, I do not want to get vaccinated with AstraZeneca. I hear the stories and I don't think it's a good vaccine. And this is a problem. All right. Thank you. And I have used up a lot of time. So let me get right to a very important question that's also on many people's minds. When can I get a haircut? <laughs> I think if we open up things like hairdressers, we need to do it in a very careful way because we don't want to disturb the current balance, which is very fragile. But at the end, this will be a political decision. You know, the government has put this on the agenda again for somewhere half of February. I think they might decide to open up in a very careful way. Uh, we as virologists, we, we tend to be very cautious uh, because we're actually very happy with the current equilibrium. And uh, it's, it's a very fragile equilibrium. Uh, so I, I cut my hair myself. I had some help. You're able to do it with a tondeuse and a comb. Uh, so some things are possible. It's not ideal, but uh, yeah, if we open up a sector, we need to do it for the coming hundred years and not for the coming month. And uh, February and March will be still two very difficult months. Personally, I'm not afraid about new variants of the virus. I think we can handle that. Uh, the biggest risk is relaxing measures too soon. And, uh, you know, just losing that delicate equilibrium, uh, that's a much bigger risk than uh, new variants of the virus. Uh, things will get better, eh? but uh, for the moment, it's the toughest period of the pandemic. And are you, are you seeing any signs of pandemic fatigue and are you worried about that? Absolutely. That worries me much more than variants, uh, than a British variant or a South African variant. That's really the biggest risk. And the biggest risk is fatigue and um, losing the broad support base among the population. And it's understandable. Uh, people are really fed up with this. I completely understand. And it's because I understand, I also know this is a big risk. Mm -hmm. And we've heard some other countries start saying that it's time to change the masking strategy. Maybe people shouldn't just be using the cloth masks anymore. Maybe they should double up. Uh, what's your take? I think that's uh, the wrong advice. Uh, it's not that will, that will solve the problem. One of the reasons I think that in Belgium we managed to control the situation now since November is because uh, we were very clear on what really matters. And that's really about contact bubbles, close contact between people, restricting the social contact. So it's quite strict in Belgium. You're allowed to have outside of your household, you can choose one person that you meet and you have close physical contact with. That's it. Uh, that's very strict. And that's where you make the difference. Uh, the reason why I say this is that the places where we use a mask, these are not the places where we infect each other. We don't infect each other in the streets. We seldomly infect each other in, uh, let's say, the shops. We infect people we know, 
we trust our friends, our family, our colleagues at work. So we need to be aware of this. And you don't change this by putting on an FFP2 mask or putting on two masks or keeping three meters distance instead of two meters distance, because it doesn't change where we really infect each other. And we need to focus on the real risks. Because if we don't do that, then all these things, it's really an empty discussion, I think. So wear a mask where you need to wear it, wear it properly. That's the most important thing. And then switching to FFP2s, etc. It will cost a lot of money. It's really uncomfortable. And uh, I don't think it will make a a difference. Mm -hmm. Any other messages specifically for the EU bubble that that you think that they need to hear? Well, uh, yeah, I, I would I would recommend them to to make a, a real EU bubble here in Brussels, uh, you know, to create your little bubble in Brussels and uh, maybe not travel too much to the home country and the family abroad. Just postpone it with a few months. You will be able to do that, definitely. Uh, but for the moment, it's better to keep things a little bit stable because uh, the epidemic is really... Yeah, ramping up in a lot of countries. It's huge differences between countries, also with the variants, etc. So make your little bubble here in Brussels for a few months, and then you will be able to, you know, to visit family, relatives, and friends in your home country as much as you want. Uh, but now is maybe not the best time to do so. So that would be my advice. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks to Sarah for bringing us that conversation and we should just say that since it was recorded, Belgian authorities have approved the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine for adults up to the age of 55. As you heard in the interview, Belgian officials say they don't have enough data right now to reach a judgment on its effectiveness on older people, but that may change in the coming weeks. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. No time this week for our recommendations for getting through lockdown. We'll have more of those next week. In the meantime, why not send us your own? What are you reading, watching or listening to to get through these difficult times? In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. And be sure to check out the new political podcast, Westminster Insider, hosted by Jack Blanchard. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts and we'll also include a link in our show notes. That's it for today. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.